Good morning, everybody. Welcome into a Thursday edition of Christian Worldview with Dr. Tony Bain. That would be me. I want to thank Austin Barker for being me yesterday. Not just everybody can be me, but he can do it. Who is me? Well, that would be Tony Beam, Director of Church and Community Engagement for the Tim Brazier Campus of North Greenville University, where Christ makes the difference and where we are equipping transformational leaders for the church and for society. Also serve as Director of Public Policy for the South Carolina Baptist Convention. And I'm the interim pastor at Five Forks Baptist Church in Simpsonville. It's just off of Woodruff Road on Batesville Road. And, you know, it's a great place to worship if you want to join us. I'll be preaching this Sunday morning at 10.30. We're going to be talking about the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, The Truth About Health Care. Come and hear about it. What all that? Now, that's not a political statement. You'll see what I mean if you come and hear the message. So I hope you'll join us. All right. A um, couple of things. Clemson's out of the NIT men's basketball tournament. They got beat by Moorhead State yesterday. So their season comes to an end. Rather disappointing. They had 24 wins but it wasn't enough to get them in the NCAA tournament. I'm not sure I understand that completely. But in any event, um, their season is over, and there'll just be a lot of questions now about next season. Just like South Carolina men's basketball season, I don't think it even led to the NIT. So a lot of questions uh, for them to try to answer before next basketball season. Um, The Cowboys – released Ezekiel Elliott. Uh, Jerry Jones made a statement talking about all the contributions in the locker room, leadership, on the field for uh, Ezekiel Elliott from 2016, I should say, to 2019. Uh, He was a monster. I mean, just won the rushing title a couple of years during that span. Uh, But for whatever reason, uh, he slowed down the last couple of years. He's only 27 years old. And they placed the franchise tag on Tony Pollard. So they're gonna, he's going to be the running back of the future for the Cowboys, it looks like. Now, I don't, don't know what's going to happen with free agency down the road. But right now, Tony Pollard's the guy for 2023. And Ezekiel Elliott is looking for a home. Uh, presently, he doesn't have a team. He's got plenty of money, though. Uh, contract that he has with the Cowboys would pay him, I think, through 2026, and it's a lot of money. And as they said yesterday, one of the articles I read is that this will go down in history as one of the worst contracts in Cowboys history. Think about that. I mean, you're talking about a guy who was the leading rusher for a couple of seasons. I mean, he's, he, he, was, he was a monster. He, everybody was talking about him. And now, just a few years later, he, it may turn out that that contract, I mean, it, it looked in the beginning like the, com, the Cowboys were getting a deal, but because of his collapse in productivity over the last few years, um, not so much. So uh, I liked Ezekiel Elliott, uh, as the article said, and Jerry Jones reiterated, he was a great influence in the clubhouse. He was a good team player, um, very popular with the rest of the team. But, um, you know, the NFL is about production. And if you can't produce, then you're not going to be able to play in the NFL. At least um, that's the Cowboys' opinion right now. They're trying to win a Super Bowl. In fact, they're just trying to get deeper in the playoffs to have a shot to get to the Super Bowl. So um, they made they made another um, 
Oh, I can't remember the guy's name, so I'm not going to talk about it. But they they made a trade yesterday for another cornerback to be on the other side of Trayvon Diggs, and uh, it's it it's going to be. I think most analysts are saying that it's a good move and uh, could could really be um, you know b- bolster an already really good defense which the Cowboys have. All right, coming up Saturday, just a reminder, Palmetto Family Council is having Vision 2024. And, of course, it's the, all the speakers that are coming are going to be talking about what's going on in the, in the world of politics and the culture today. But they're going to be looking ahead to 2024 because that's a presidential election, thus the name of the conference. Uh, I'll be down in Charleston. I'm going to serve as co-master of ceremonies, Mitch Prosser, who is now the interim president and executive director at Palmetto Family. He and I will kind of, kind of be going back and forth on the on the platform. Senator Josh Kimbrell is going to be down there um, to welcome folks to South Carolina for this event and to welcome uh, folks from outside of South Carolina to come. But our the best thing we've got going is the lineup, and I want you to hear about these speakers because Senator Marsha Blackburn is going to be there from Tennessee, uh, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, uh, you're going to have Senator Lindsey Graham, Ambassador Nikki Haley, Governor Asa Hutchinson, Senator John Kennedy, businessman Vivek Ramaswamy, and Senator Tim Scott. So, great lineup. of we've, We found out yesterday, by the way, for sure, that DeSantis was not going to join us for the weekend. I didn't have any much hope of that left, but it was still a small spark out there that he would show up, but he's not going to be able to come. And so this, this is the lineup. Now, we did add Mike Rogers yesterday. Congressman Mike Rogers is going to speak for about five minutes. So um, I hope you'll join us. It starts at doors open at, I think, 11, no, 12. Uh, the conference begins at 1, and we're just going to, you know, we'll have some um, videos from our sponsors. We're going to have the speakers. We're going to have music. We're going to have just a whole bunch of stuff, uh, main thing, main attraction, is to get to hear this incredible lineup of speakers. So come on down to Charleston if you can. If you don't have a ticket, go go to palmettofamily.org. That's palmettofamily.org, and you can get your tickets. There are still tickets available. Now, they're, they're running out pretty quickly. We've got a 600-seat venue. And uh, we're, you know, we're, we're getting there. So if you want to get a ticket, you probably need to go get your ticket today. Got to be able to come down to Charleston. We're going to wrap up. Uh, did it. We were working on the uh, run of show, uh, the schedule yesterday. Looks like we're going to wrap up. We'll start at 1. We should wrap up by 535. So you still got time to get back home and it not be that late of a night, really. Um, if you come down to Charleston, I think it'd be worth it for a day visit, and you could stay overnight, um, enjoy Charleston maybe for the weekend. All right, uh, his radio talk, 919-897, is changing formats. It will change formats on March 31st, so all the talk radio parts are going to go away on, on that uh, at the end of the day, that day, and uh, with Gary Miller's retirement and – so if you're looking for this program, let me tell you how to find it. Um, today, I'm, I've got training tonight on the equipment that I've got in my house so I can try to make sure that I can do the show live and I can report the co- po- record the podcast at the same time. I'm real excited about the new website, drtonybeam.com. That's drtonybeam.com. Uh, you'll be able to send emails to me. 
um, as as well, and it's going to be easy to send me an email and you just send it to to Dr. Tony Bean. <laughs> so I'll I'll be telling you all about how to email me. You won't have to do it through the regular North Greenville account. It's going to come to a separate account that'll be linked to the website. The website might go up this weekend. Now I'm not going to say for sure because they're doing some last-minute tweaks to it, some things that I requested be on there, um, you know, but it, it's going to be, it, it'll be up soon, and you'll be able to stream the program live on the website from 7.30 to 8.30, Monday through Friday. Uh, we're going to do this program live. Now, we're also going to have a podcast, so the podcast will be the program recorded and then um posted as a podcast you'll be able to download it for free all you got to do is go and subscribe it'll come to your uh it'll be it'll come to your podcast collection every day and you can listen to it at your leisure you can bluetooth your smart device through your car radio um, and you can listen to the program on the radio if that's what you normally do from 7 30 to 8 30 um, as i said we're gonna we're cutting cutting it back an hour so a lot of exciting things coming up. You know, we've only got, what, this week and next week? Uh, no, next is two more weeks. Um, we'll end up this week, and then there'll be two weeks to go. Uh, kind of a countdown clock here a little bit on his radio talk um, headed toward the retirement of the man, the myth, the legend, the way of life, Gary Miller. Um, I'm going to dive into a topic here uh, for just a little bit that is – um, you know, I, 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 for, for me and my political, theological, cultural philosophy, <laughs> I mean, I, you kind of put all those things together. Theological comes first. I try to run my life and say things on this radio program and when I'm preaching that reflect the truth of God's Word the things that I think are incredibly important in our culture. And I also try to acknowledge the fact that we're to be in but not of the world because we've been sent into the world by Christ to be the aroma of Christ, to be ambassadors for Christ, to be the influence of the gospel in the world which means that the world is not always going to agree or to accept the things that we believe, teach, and preach, even though we firmly believe them to be true, not based on a subjective standard, that is something that can be measured outside of itself, but an objective standard, something that is fixed and set and that all things should be measured by because an object, objective standard would be based on the truth, and truth is that which corresponds with reality. So, I, you know, philosophically, that, that's kind of where I come from here. Um, but in, the, in this world that we know as the political world, what we need to realize is that we can't, as believers, impose our theological beliefs on the culture we have to win the debate. You're, okay, you you does does that make does that make sense to everybody? In other words, you this is not a theocracy. I can't, by virtue of just believing deeply what I think is the truth, storm into the culture and demand that the culture accept that belief and adopt it and make laws that are related to it. 
I can't I can't storm into the culture and demand it. I have to walk into the culture armed with what I believe is the truth and be persuasive. I need to make an argument. I need to talk to those who are going to make the laws and try to convince them that my thought process is correct and that I'm actually right in what I think and say about it. So when I go down to the legislature and I talk to lawmakers, I tell them what I believe is the truth. They push back. I answer their pushback. And then, you know, ultimately, though, I'm not going to get them to change their mind unless they accept my argument, unless they come around and, and buy into its logic. So right now in South Carolina, we've got a tremendous political divide. I mean, we've got, and it's and it's among Republicans. This this is the the Democrats in South Carolina don't have enough political clout uh, via seats in the House or seats in the Senate to actually do anything uh, to get anything passed. They have to have Republican support in both chambers. Republicans could pass whatever they want if they were all on the same page, and they're not. And that's why we don't have a law protecting life in the womb in South Carolina. You've got the Senate at six weeks. You've got the House at conception. Now, for me, as a, as a believer, I believe that it's important that we protect life beginning at conception. And so I'm going to try my best, which I've been doing, uh, to persuade lawmakers that conception is where we need to be, that we need to that we need to go after, if we're going to make abortion illegal, we need to go after the people who provide abortions and have penalties for those who break the law and then try to establish by law the fact that life is precious. Um, the, that, and, and there's a bill that came out of the House that's over in the Senate that does those things, um, and it's called the Human Life Protection Act. Now, there's another bill that, and of course, there's then there's the six-week, the heartbeat bill, which, you know, the argument that they make, that proponents of the heartbeat bill make, say, look, you, you guys that are in the pro-life community, uh, you supported the heartbeat bill, and we got it passed uh, with much ballyhoo and fanfare because it was, the, as been said many times, the, the strongest pro-life bill ever passed in South Carolina. True, that, that's what it was. But all of that, again, I would go back and say all of that was in a pre-Roe versus Wade world. And one of the purposes of the heartbeat bill was to start a debate about viability. And we believed that viability was an argument that we could win before the Supreme Court. And actually, the Supreme Court was actually more conservative than our efforts in viability. It, it's, it, it, although it, I think it would have agreed with the viability argument, it went farther and said the decision originally in Roe versus Wade was not correct. And so that sent the whole thing back to the states. We've got about 12, well, about 14 states that limit abortion, um, you know, pretty uh, very severely. Uh, we've got some other states that, uh, you know, take abortion back to 12 weeks to 15 weeks. 
And then we got a bunch of states that are just, you know, the wild west of abortion. You can have one if um, for any reason or for no reason. I mean, it all the way up to birth. And, you know, those those states, of course, are, are very progressive and they don't have any kind of, in my view, a life ethic that can be defended in any way. So anyway, because of this divide, you, you know, the sentence says, no, six weeks, house says conception. And then there's another group that's smaller that their bill is beginning to get a lot of attention. Now, getting a lot of attention doesn't mean it's getting a lot of traction, but it's getting a lot of attention. And it, it, there are several national news organizations have picked up on it. It's called the South Carolina Prenatal Equal Protection Act. And it would, quote, afford equal protection of the laws to all preborn children from the moment of fertilization and reclassify any act that ends a pregnancy as willful prenatal homicide. So here's, here's the main reason that this bill is not going to is not getting traction in the House or in the, is, and is not going to in the Senate is because of the criminalization of women who could be charged with a crime of homicide, serve up to 30 years in prison, and maybe even get the death sentence, uh, the death penalty in South Carolina. So that's a, obviously, that's a, that's a very controversial because it's a new concept. I mean, it's being thrown into the debate over pro-life. You know, normally pro-life debates begin and end with how do you treat the baby in the womb and what do you do about the abortion laws and the doctors that are, are having abortions? This bill goes back and says we're going we're gonna to add a step here because the real culprit is the woman who is the mother who is sanctioning the death of her own baby. So here's, here's the thing about that bill that I think is dooming it to not be able to get a hearing is that the conversation, the national conversation about life, its value is centered around the baby in the womb and what laws need to be passed and restrictions put on the medical community as it relates to life in the womb. When you introduce a new element, which this bill does, it introduces the culpability of the mother, then that that's a long road of getting people to be persuaded that a woman should be held culpable. Right now, there there's no way that there's going to be a majority of lawmakers in the House or in the Senate that are going to buy that argument. Now we can we can stick with that. We can say, okay, we believe that that we're right in in the, in our argument. And therefore, anything less than this is wrong. Or we can try to pass a bill that has a chance of getting passed and become law that will protect life in the womb and give, while this debate is going on, about what's going to happen with the culpability of the mother. Okay, I, I just, I want life protected in the womb is what I'm trying to achieve. That's... And, and there, is, there is not a path right now that allows us to protect life in the womb and hold the mother of the baby culpable. And then I can make a lot of, of, of arguments here, and I've, I've done this before. Look, I think there's an argument to be made about the intervening acts of culpability in the sense that there are a lot of women, as women have been lied to, 
told that it's just a, a blob of tissue. The culture's pretty much gone merrily along with that. And and now we need to change that argument. We need to, now that we know, first of all, that that's a lie, and those of us who are believers and followers of Jesus Christ and serious about our faith have known that that's a lie for a long time. But we have to convince, we, we live in this constitutional republic where we have to step into the political environment, make the argument, and win the argument there in order to get laws passed. So I just think we're, we're not at a point where that is a portion of the argument that we can win. And if it becomes the central focus of the argument, we're going to lose the ability to protect life in the womb. Now, let me say something about, and the state newspapers got this all over the place today. I mean, this is South Carolina, uh, South Carolina women. Uh, let me back up. Here's the article from today. Uh, this is by Joseph Bustos at the state newspaper. The title is State Bill to Make Abortion Punishable by Death Has Slim Chance of Passing. Now, that's a sensationalized headline. The state is capitalizing on what is considered to be the most extreme part of this bill. And so they're trying to paint the proponents of this bill as some kind of evil people. And this is where it, it really frustrates me because— I know a lot of the people whose names are on this bill. I know who they are. I know their character. I know their motivation. I know their heart. And to treat them as if they are out doing something that's terrible just because I happen to disagree with their method at the moment is a, is a terrible thing to do. It's have the conversation. Let people make their arguments. You're, you're never going to find me charging against people who are working to try to protect life in the womb. Even if I disagree with some of their methods, I'm not coming after them because I believe that the motivation behind what they want to accomplish is right and true. It's pure. It's not they're, they're not trying to perpetuate or, or to put something forth that's bad. They're trying to protect life. I think the way that they're doing it, I, I don't agree with it, okay? But it doesn't mean that they're bad. It doesn't mean that they need to be ostracized or their names put out there and their lives uh, opened up by the media because of a particular viewpoint that they hold. This is the problem that we're having in America right now. We, we have to extend our disagreements into personal attacks, and every time we do that, we lessen the opportunity of being able to find a path to work together. And I, and, and like I said, I these these there are there are people I count as my friends in the legislature who in every other political uh, discussion and battle, we're going to be lined up completely. But you know, in, in this issue, we agree on the end goal of protecting life in the womb. We disagree on what that means for women and how to get there. But I would like for that disagreement to remain something that we continue to dialogue about and that we try to work together as much as we can on other issues and even on the life issue. You know, I, I, I know that there's a disagreement. I, I don't need to see signs telling me that I'm wrong when I'm trying to put forth my um, what, what I think 
can get passed to protect life in South Carolina. So I just, when I see the state newspaper, there's a lot of uh, emphasis being put on this now. And the, the goal here of the media is to paint these people as extremists. They're moms and dads and people that are doing for the mo- for really for all of the parts. They're doing goods in South Carolina. They're trying to make South Carolina better. They agree with a conservative truth foundational belief in the things that are important in our state. And it's just not uh, it is not right for them to be attacked as if they're some kind of extremist group because they hold an opinion that is different from mine about how to go about getting life protected in the womb. I hope that makes sense. I just, I, I'm, I, I just refuse to, to be on, on, to get in this one side or the other dichotomy that is not going to get us any closer to our goal, which is to convince people that human life is precious, created in the image of God, and it deserves to be protected by law. There's an article today at National Review that is very telling about the progressive mindset in our country, and it's something that we should know about and embrace because and in turn, when I say embrace, I don't mean embrace as as in accept, but we need to see it for what it is, and learn about the progressive mindset from this particular issue. Okay, now what am I talking about? I'm talking about an article at National Review today titled "Why So Many Democrats Can't Accept the Post-Pandemic Return to Normal." Now, I don't know about you, but There is nothing about COVID that affects my life today. Nothing. I mean, zero. I don't wear a mask. I don't social distance. I go out to eat. I I think in the upstate of South Carolina, it's safe to say from my observation, and that's what it is. It's personal observation. But we're back to the way things were before the pandemic. My life has been characterized by that for about a year. Now, during that last year, I've had COVID, I mean, I, for the second time, but I, I stayed home. It was like having the flu or having a bad cold or a sinus infection or bronchitis. I stayed home for a few days. Um, I made sure that, uh, you know, I tested negative and I went back to work and I didn't, you know, there was nothing. I took medicine and that, that was it. Uh, I didn't change my behavior. And if you go out in public right now, you'll still see people in the upstate wearing masks. I mean, I'll run into people sometimes at the grocery store or I'll see them out in public and they're wearing masks. Okay, um, I just I, that's that's fine if they feel like they need to do that. But what what the, the a Gallup poll found this past week was stunning in the number of people that don't want to move on from the pa- pandemic. And there's a reason for it. These, these people, the vast majority of them are progressive, and they saw the pandemic as a door of opportunity for more government control, for more opportunity for them to live the life that they want to live, which is essentially an isolation. 
an opportunity to advance some other type of political agenda or control over other people's lives, and they don't want to let go of it because they don't they they liked the pandemic lifestyle, and they want to continue to live in it. Now you might think, well, that's about five or six percent of the population. I mean, if they and if they want to continue to do that, so be it. But here's here's the stunning thing about this: in the last week of February, according to Gallup, only thirty three percent of Americans said their life is completely back to normal post COVID. Let, let, let me say that again: thirty three percent of Americans. Where are these people? I mean, I don't see them. My my life is like I said. I we we go to the movies, we go out to dinner, we have family gatherings, we go to the park, we go to the. I mean, we there's nothing. Even doctors' offices now. I I rarely am asked to put on a mask. I mean, I I might be it depending on the doctor's office, but even that is kind of faded. And so. If only if if I'm part of the 33%, where is the 77% that are still living as if COVID is this stalking monster that's going to come and take their life? I I don't I don't know where they are. Now, the 33% of Americans that say they're back to normal completely is up from 31% in October. Another 20% in this Gallup poll said that while returning to the status quo is possible, it hasn't happened for them yet. But most, here's the plurality, 47%, that's almost half, said that their lives had not returned to normal and never would. Did you get the last part of that? In other words, we're going to live with a mask the rest of our lives. We're going to socially distance. We're, we'll, we'll be around family, but we're not going to be around strangers in large groups because we're going to remain in COVID lockdown in our minds. Partisanship plays a substantial role here. By the way, this is National Review. It's Noah Rothman reporting. Only one-third of self-identified Republicans have given up hope that normal will ever return. I don't even know where those people are. I mean, I... A third of Republicans. I don't know any. I don't know any. Well, I don't know anybody, personally, that whose life is not back to completely back to normal. But a third of self-identified Republicans have given up hope that normal would ever return, while a majority insisted that it already had. By contrast, fifty-three percent of Democratic respondents said normal was a thing of the past. And under one quarter of them said the pandemic was fully behind them. 53% said, Nor- we don't want normal. Well, of course not. They're progressives. They want by design. They want the, the culture, society completely upended so that we use that upending of society to partner with the government and corporations to usher in a different way of life, something that resembles their progressive priorities, which is pretty much government control of everything. Um, you know, you you being woke, you being forced to accept a woke agenda when it comes to LGBTQ, the whole alphabet soup of, of transsectional politics, 
Um, you know, th- this is th- 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 this is something that people see as an opportunity, and they don't want to let it go. The you know the teachers unions are still they they I think they like because it was good for them to be able to do work from home. I mean, you know, run the classroom from home. You don't have to be in the classroom. You don't have to deal with unruly students. You don't have to. There's so many things that are taken out of the way that you don't like about teaching if you're teaching in front of a screen. And I think there are a lot of people, not everybody, please don't misunderstand. I'm, I'm going by the numbers here. But at least 47%, and if you're a Democrat, 53% believe that that's a better life than what we had prior to COVID. And I just find that incredible. At the beginning of, of, of um, October in 2022, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention stopped publishing data on COVID cases and COVID-related deaths after more than two years, shifting to weekly virus tracking updates instead. Dr. Nath- Dr. Anthony Fauci cited a considerable diminution <coughs> in infections, hospitalizations, and deaths to justify the CDC's move, which followed similar moves made by multiple state health departments. Norwegian Cruise Lines, one of the few remaining commercial institutions with restrictions against unvaccinated customers uh, still on its books, dropped that prohibition and stopped requiring passengers to wear masks or test for infection before boarding on October 3rd. A few weeks later, Governor Gavin Newsom revealed that he would not renew California's COVID-19 state of emergency, noting that the threat posed by the virus had become a manageable situation. Near the end of the month, a state court in New York reinstated with benefits and back pay the 16 sanitation workers who had been let go for failing to comply with New York City's vaccination mandate. So what is all that saying? All of it is saying that COVID's over. I mean, in terms of the controlling factor of our life, unless you're a progressive. But if you're a progressive, you want to be in control of other people's lives. You want to be in a position where you're the victim. And therefore, you're going to keep pushing COVID because it gives you the opportunity for both of those things to be true. Chuck, thanks for calling. Yes, uh, going back to like where you were talking about the controlling and they like to wear it keeps people in their space and stuff like that. Right. I was watching a video. There was a Middle Eastern man. I don't remember his name, but he was talking about that same kind of thing. And he was talking about in the future where AIs and all of this other stuff will be able to program humans and everything. But he was, the people that you're talking about don't understand that the people that are at the top, don't even want people like us. We're a waste of time because we're not as valuable as they see us to be. So to follow in their way of controlling us, that is, that's a problem. And I see that those people are giving up their American God-given gift of freedom when they do this. When they follow people that control their right, right. Well, I hate for that, and I think a lot of those people they 
they have to have that. They have to have somebody tell them what to do. Yeah, that's a great point, Chuck. I, I appreciate you making it, and I appreciate you listening and calling the show today because you, you, you make a really good point about the the desire to be controlled. You know, there, there's one thing. If somebody's coming along and telling you how you have to live your life, you don't have to make any decisions about that. I mean, you just accept that, and, and then, therefore, you don't take responsibility if, if, if a decision that you make leads you down a path that's not successful, if you've got somebody else calling all the shots for you and you're happy about that, then and, and you've got somebody supplying your basic needs, that would be the government. I mean, sure, a lot of people loved getting those COVID checks because it gave them some amount of freedom. I mean, look at how long it's taken people to go back to work. I think we're finally getting people back in the workforce because they realize that the gravy train has jumped the track and that they're not going to have the government sending them a check every week unless they live in San Francisco or some of these other places that, you know, where the debate's going on about a minimum income that the state or the city or wherever, some form of government should should supply you with a minimum amount of income and take care of your needs every day so that you can just go do what you want to. I mean, there there is a mindset. There is the there is among progressives the idea of two things that seem to be diametrically opposed, but they exist in the same space. We like not having to make decisions about our life when it comes to us, but we also like telling other people how they have to run their life. We don't want to make decisions about our own life, but we do enjoy telling you about how you have to run yours and that you've got to agree with us. That's an, that's it, and, and it's, of course, most Americans are going to push back against that. You know, all of this about the COVID lifestyle, shall we say, which COVID, was, it was a lifestyle. It was a lifestyle of isolation, a lifestyle of not commuting to work, a lifestyle of working from a screen. Um, and and there's so, there are a lot of people that embrace that. Most of them are progressives. And here's the thing. If they want to live that lifestyle— the thing that's making America great is that people can live, choose a lifestyle and live it, and leave everybody else alone. The problem is that the last part of that is no longer in effect. Progressives that choose to live a progressive lifestyle then attack and demonize everybody that doesn't want to join their world. And that's what's causing a lot of the tension that we have in our culture. If you don't put on a mask, you're evil. You're MAGA. MAGA's become a, a sort of a, a, a byword for being ignorant and backward and mean and overly religious and all of those. I mean, you could, you could just stack up all these uh, descriptions into MAGA. Make America great again. And so they, they, they want to live this lifestyle, and they want to pull you in there with them, and, and they want the whole world to look like their lifestyle because they believe if they don't, then their lifestyle is going to go away. You know, once everybody moves on from COVID, then their opportunity for social justice change, their opportunity for uh, being able to, to be not in control of their own life – all of that is going gonna, is gonna to evaporate if we all go back to normal. They don't want normal. I mean, here's, listen to these 
statistics from the Gallup poll. I mean, it's stunning to me to hear this, really. I, I, I'm naive, I suppose, but I had no idea. 42% of self-described Democrat voters told Gallup pollsters in the last week of February that they don't believe the situation surrounding COVID is improving. I mean, I've just talked to you about the Centers for Disease Control dropping all these regs, all of the numbers dropping, all the hospitalizations dropping, and yet in the mind of progressives, or at least Democrat voters, 42% say things are not getting better. Uh, 36% still worry about their risk of infection. 55% say they self-isolate at least a little from, and by the way, what the heck does that mean? I mean, you self-isolate a little. You either isolate or you don't. I mean, if you're not, if you're around people, you're not isolating. You you can't be a little bit pregnant and you can't be a little bit isolated. It's one or the other. Forty-eight percent say they still wear face masks outside their homes. All this among a demographic with a self-reported vaccination rate of 82 percent. Well, we now know that the vaccination doesn't mean anything. I mean, you people, you, you're vaccinated. You still get the COVID. You can still spread COVID. And the the only advantage seems to be that maybe some people who get COVID with the vaccination don't get as sick as they would have if they hadn't been vaccinated. But even that information is beginning to wear a little bit. So, you know, how, how and, and then there's this paragraph that is is in the article and I think this is kind of this is a good summation statement even though the article goes on for a while the phenomenon Gallup measured has little to do with the virus or relative risk it presents to the public it doesn't seem especially correlated even to conventional politics after all these rank and file democrats have simply disregarded the cues their party's elected officials have been sending for months in relation to the pandemic They've developed a fraught relationship with what they believe constituted normal in the before time, and they should and and that they should not that shouldn't come as much as a surprise. You know, now they're criticizing President Biden. They're saying he ought to be ki- keeping us in the COVID normal because that's our comfort zone. Less responsibility, no responsibility for our decision, staying at home, no commuting to work. You, I mean, the list goes on and on. We get to control others, and we have somebody that controls us that we trust, and that's a comfortable place for them to be. Gene, quickly, go ahead. Yes, I am your prototypical MAGA man, and I'm calling in in response to your uh, report here. You know, these are the very same people, the very same uh, uh, political demographic group that would criticize you, Pastor Bean, for, uh, uh, for exhorting uh, individuals to guard themselves in their sexual behavior with respect to HIV. Right, right. That's right. You know what I'm saying? Yes, I do. So, in other words, they're, yeah, they're the same I, people. I'm of the opinion HIV is far more dangerous than, uh, than uh, any of the coronavirus uh, variants and COVID-19. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't argue with you about that, Gene. I mean, I think, it's, I think um, uh, sexually transmitted diseases... Or have been at epidemic levels for a long time in this country, and we're just not we're we're just not paying enough attention to it, and and we're not going to do anything about it because the only cure for that, the only thing you can do about it, is be responsible, biblical in your sexual relationships. One man, one woman, 
committed to each other for life gets rid of sexually transmitted diseases.